What up, guys and girls? It is Bobby and Sean, and we are back. Is this a, is this a formal we'll be, we're back? Yeah, episode? this is a more formal we're back episode. Was probably we're back four now. That holiday we're back last week, and I think we are on we were back three. So this okay, is four. So this is we're back volume four. Um, this week's episode is brought to you guys by Ten Thousand. Uh, I'm actually wearing the hoodie right now. For those that are li- watching, uh, for those that are listening, it's a pretty sweet hoodie. Um, use code CronusFit15 for 15% off your order for $10,000. Um, it helps us uh, sponsor the podcast a little bit more, and they've uh, graciously also sponsored um, one of our scholarships. So, uh, shout out 10000 uh, Really have enjoyed using their apparel to work out in. Really uh, comfortable, well-fitting, very durable, better than Lululemon. Yeah, yeah, better than Lululemon. Uh, I like ten thousand. I am not wearing a ten thousand hoodie. If you can't tell, if you're watching this, I've I've got the Northeastern uh, hoodie on underneath our Cronus Fit hoodie sweatshirt. Sorry, I haven't come out with the hoodie line yet. But ten thousand is just super comfortable. The shorts, I do nothing but run in them now. Uh, lifting, I do nothing but squatting in their their functional variety of their shirt shorts. It's not the interval short, and I keep blanking on the name. Like I'm an expert here, but probably the session. Uh, yeah, like super blown away by both the durability of the short and just the fit and the comfort. I've like I liked some of Lululemon shorts when they were like the first to come out with that functional fitness esque short, but the down on your legs, they didn't fit as tight as I would have liked. And that's not because I have tiny stick legs or chicken legs. So before you go jumping to that conclusion, uh, you can stay seated. Uh, but they just didn't fit as tight as I wanted them to when I'm really getting like a nice pump on. But these ones do. And and 10,000, like I wasn't much into the Instagram and I know they do a ton of social media work. And so after they approached us and I checked them out, I was like, okay, like we'll see what they're about. We'll, we'll try some of their clothing. And holy shit, I, I wish I had knew, known about these guys earlier instead of wasting money on like Lulu shorts every once in a while that I would need to to up my my inventory or shirts. I mean, they're 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 short sleeve shorts shirt shirts. Jesus, I am quite illiterate today. Are are super comfortable. So um, huge thanks to Ten Thousand for reaching out. And again. Huge thanks to them for helping to sponsor one of the scholarships going forward next year. Uh, if you didn't see our social media, uh, we're super proud. You know, when Bobby and I started this company a couple years ago, originally it was like if we can just generate some funds that cover the costs of running the business, that's great. But beyond that, it was enough where he and I could can invest that on our own. Um, we made enough to cover it and we were, all right, this excess that we have, we need to start developing and, and pushing towards nonprofit work, which we did. And then I think in our first year, we were able to, to donate and give back a couple thousand dollars on top of the scholarship fund. And then just this past year, being able to give back $10,000 and next year we want to up that, um, is super humbling because it's just, Everything is only happening because of our Cronus fam and because of our followers. We have a ton of free programs that are constantly available. We offer free programs every day, but it's individuals going and just you know clicking that one-time fee for a $20 program here and there. 
that throughout the year added up to the extent that we were able to give several thousand dollars in scholarships out and then pick charities that so many of our listeners and followers recommended. So huge thanks to our Cronus fam. Uh, 2020 was a shitty year for most, um, but we were able to really come together and help out a lot of those in need because of you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you very, very much. Really echo what Sean said. Huge thank you guys. Um, really started from the bottom and now we're here. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's been a great journey. Looking forward to seeing what the next couple of years bring to us. Um, looking to expand some of our program offerings. Looking to get some more apparel. Um, Silky or Ranger Panties are going to be next, I think, for the apparel yeah. that we're going to get. Um, so working on some other um, other swag, maybe like a flag or something like that since you guys have been asking for flags for a while now. Um, but we're in the works for some more stuff to bring to you guys. So I think going from something super positive and great and starting to show off on the opposite end of the spectrum, Wonder Woman 84. Did we talk about this already? I think we we, we talked about Mulan. and uh, I we, I, I'm pretty sure we talked about Wonder Woman 84 last week that it was trash. That I, not, Neither of us had watched it. Okay, so yeah, neither one, neither one of us had watched it and acknowledged that it was trash through the grapevine. I uh, got HBO Max uh, specifically for six months just to watch this, and then not realizing that HBO Max has all of the diehard movies, so it's already an investment that's well worth it. But mm. for the reason of getting HBO Max, seeing Wonder Woman 84, and trying to see maybe if you know, a movie geek buff like me who really likes shitty movies could learn to love a movie like Wonder Woman 84. And that is a resounding hell no. That has to be one of the worst movies and and genuinely bad movies I have ever seen in my entire life. Just, I don't, you know, like when people watch Terminator and you're like, I don't get the... Um, time travel loop, like, you know, if, if it branches off and creates a new future or, or how that like interplays and people will challenge the writing in that kind of movie, but still generally Terminator movies are good. There's such leaps in this writing that, that can't be overcome with either good action sequences, good acting, um, other things to, to divert your attention. It, it is straight from the 20 minute mark to whatever 100 minutes in it's one of the worst movies i've ever seen ever interesting that's a shame i did like the first wonder woman i thought the first Wonder Woman was pretty well done um but i was looking forward to watching this one but now i have completely written off wonder woman 84 from my list yeah and it's not even one of those oh i've heard so many people say it's bad i should watch it on my own i almost wish i had not watched it on my own because it was just that awful the first wonder mm-hmm. woman was great you know, you start off uh, with, you know, Diana Prince or whatever, and, and she's on the island of the Amazonians. Um, Chris Pine, you know, lands there, but she's going through all these trials and, you know, figuring herself out. And you're like, okay, like, cool. And then there's like a bunch of action sequences which aren't like too far-fetched, which are really, really well put together. And then it goes to like, and there's some really dark themes in there, like gassing soldiers on the front mm-hmm. in World War One, ton of people dying. This one, like, it, it's like they took a playbook out of Disney's Mulan, which is available on Disney Plus and just as bad. Of people might die in this, but there's no bloodshed. 
the violence action sequences are like few and far between. You see one in the opening sequence at a mall in Washington, D.C., and it's like the next time you see any action, it's 80 minutes later with Kristen Wiig's character where she's a Catwoman now. And that is only tolerable because Wonder Woman loses her powers to some extent. And then there's like a, a chase scene. But it was really bad, dude. Like awful, awful. And I don't want to like spoil it unless you want me to spoil it for our listeners or for you. That's but okay. trash, All absolute right. trash. We'll talk about a trash movie. Do not watch. Um, you know what movie I watched the other day? That probably one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, Whiplash. Oh yeah, great with Miles Teller. That's a yeah, great movie. Great movie. Am I rushing or am I lagging? Dragging. Dragging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a. It's such a great. Um, I think it's like kind of a. To try to take this. Uh, discussion further on like whiplash for those that haven't seen it the whole premise of the movie is like uh you have this like this drummer with like a lot of potential this young drummer with a lot of potential and then he has this uh very demanding abusive coach or orchestra leader that you know his attitude is you create you what you do your responsibility as as like a coach is to take talent and encourage talent and to let it blossom into um, like becoming the best in your field or whatever. So I think it's a very, you know, a very interesting take on uh, like coaching and different aspects of like coaching and being a leader because you can make an argument like, you know, in the, in the military <clears throat> when you have guys or subordinates that have a lot of talent and then, you know, you want to encourage them to push them, to drive them to become better. But then where do you draw that line of becoming, you know, too demanding and too abusive versus, uh, you know, too easy and letting them slide with, with not putting the best effort forward. Absolutely. And it was so weird seeing that done so well in a movie about a jazz ensemble. Yeah. Cause I think it's JK Simmons is the, mm-hmm. the conductor and He's really aggressive in the way that he talks to his students. He's really offensive when it comes down to it uh, with his language. And I grew up playing in the orchestra, you know, through college, and I'd never, ever met a conductor or music director that was that violent, uh, that demeaning. And I just don't – I've never experienced it, so I could never say like, oh, that that seems commonplace. Like you're 50-50 on that. But definitely thinking about that in the military – I think, and if you've seen the movie, you know what kind of personality we're talking about. But I think that personality we need more of in the army today. Um, maybe not so much with the offensive remarks. If if you've seen what happened with the fifth RTB commander being uh, released or replaced or dropped or taken out of command, but I, is the army getting softer? I, from when I got out to where when I got in, it, it, it definitely was. What are you seeing now? Do you think the army needs, you know, some toughening up? Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on it. You know, being in medcom is definitely, you know, I'm very far from the line. Um, but it's definitely, I don't know if I would say like it's noticeable, but, um, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. Just was like the, I guess like the soldiers or lower enlisted enlisted people, um, 
in the hospital is going to be different than like the people that you would work with on the line too, you know? Yeah. So like, it's like a different work environment, but there's definitely, you know, like a, not like a lack of respect, but like more of a, I guess like familiarity that gets bred in medcom because you have like enlisted like LPNs or like that work with or medics that work with like officers, like nurses and doctors there's been a couple of times where I've had to correct like a medic for like call me by first name where it's like, you know, like you can make an argument for letting, you know, uh, like medics or nurses call you by your first name. But at the same time, though, like you wouldn't call your, you know, your commander by the first name in no. a professional setting. That seems like a, one of those like SF realm type things where you see teams that are on a super friendly first name basis and. Like, is it the line of work or what comfort level do you get to where rank is not something that, that is, you know, commonplace in the way that you talk to one another? Because, you know, having just met a couple dudes um, from the unit, like, they're pretty much on a first-name basis with with everyone. You couldn't really tell who's the officer or who's enlisted, you know, mm-hmm. just walking around and seeing them communicate to one another. Yeah, but I said that's, like, a different unit dynamic environment where you're like you are you know everyone has a role but they're in the same in a certain lens like kind of equal in their um, experience level and expertise level but like in you know the conventional army and the hospital there is definitely you know there is a hierarchy and once you give off i think um as like a leader if you you know surrender some um some like maybe some of your higher i don't know it's hard for me to like you know, verbalize it but it's like once you like give off that kind of professional once you surrender that professional attitude that you sh- that you have it's hard to get it back like you know what i mean yeah that's a great point i think like like once you start allowing like people to call you by your first name or to become more like friendly with you i think you sacrifice a little bit of that professional edge where people can take you seriously professionally um, not to say that like you can't be friendly with people, but you sh- probably shouldn't be friends necessarily with um, you know a lot of people they work with because they can create an environment where you know your opinion doesn't isn't quite respected or people don't take you as seriously because you think like you you know that you're just a nice guy that you know won't get mad at them or won't hold them to a certain standard. Yeah, and that can even you can extend that to to small almost infractions with you know some of that subordinate superior relationship stuff um if you know anyone's been in uh units where for instance like on my first deployment my vehicle crew and i because we did so many convoys to where we would patrol you know it's only four to five of us at a time in that vehicle and i remember having several conversations with my platoon sergeant where he said you don't see it because you know you're around these guys every single day but what you don't want to have happening is your relationship with them serving as a shield for them to either be, you know, insubordinate to a squad leader or to another team leader just, you know, by chance of their proximity to you. And so I think some of that familiarity that, you know, you were talking about with the first name basis thing it might be one of those examples of it potentially doesn't cross the line on you know, really a professional level, maybe between you and that individual, but between that individual and others, um, you know, because my, my RTO, 
you know, if he had a problem, instead of going to, you know, the weapon squad leader to talk to him, um, would sometimes just come straight to me. I'm going to be like, that's not how this works. You, you need to understand that, you know, the, the PL uh, is a nice guy, but, you know, your weapon squad leader is the one that's your raider. And I need to make sure that, you know, when you go on after being an RTO for 18 months, you're going to be a, a good gun team leader or something. Um or you go and you're you're a good saw gunner when you go onto a, a line squad. So that's something to keep in mind for all those you know PLs out there that have really good relationships with their RTOs, their medics, um, any kind of specialty person in your platoon. Um, you got to look outside of just your own individual bubble and what kind of impact that has on a formation. Yeah, I think that's a great great point to make. So I know as like a second lieutenant, like you know as a fresh second lieutenant, I did not think about you know having a about creating like a climate of like a good leadership climate you know i was more i'll admit it i was probably more worried about being you know being one of the boys and being a good leader and um initially you know you it it works out well initially because you know it's like you're well liked everybody likes you you know things get done but then after a while um they probably will lead to some detriments and the overall unit culture and your ability to get things done because you know when you ask or you tell your guys to get something done, they won't take you as seriously because they know you as this nice guy right. that won't get mad at them if or that won't, you know, correct somebody for not doing things too standard or letting they'll know that you, you'll let things slide because you're um you know, friendly with them. Yeah, but that's, and, and but pe- that's like or like well I would say like that's like a big army type of thing where you're not necessarily dealing with people that are super motivated to do put the best effort forward. I think in soft and like more selective organizations you can definitely get away with a little bit more friendly environment because yeah. oh for sure because yeah. everybody and, is you know held with high standard yeah and it's not that uh it's not that environment where individuals need to be coached as much to do the right thing because you know as an officer especially you're like a dime a dozen you're gonna do your 12 months to two years of pl time some exo time staff time here and there and you're gone and then that individual is going to be in the same squad, that same platoon, probably anywhere from two to four or five years um, before they go on or, or they go to specialty platoons or they PCS. So for them, it's about doing their job the best that they can to make that organization consistently run. And it's not so much going to be based off of, you know, as an officer, your short time there trying to implement something new. Whereas in the conventional army, the guy who filled in for me afterwards, I thought was a complete dud. Um, and so I think in a conventional sense, there's probably some more turnover for individual talent really making a difference in a platoon. Whereas in soft, I don't think it's as important to have maybe that like super stellar leader sitting there because the organization itself could run without you. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's a common, I think, mistake that a lot of, you know, juniors, second lieutenants, or like junior PLs will kind of fall into that trap of, you know, being liked and friendly versus being a good leader and making the hard decisions. So how would you mentor, you know, your fire section or, you know, if you're a platoon leader, how would you mentor your junior enlisted soldiers that you work with on a, on a day-to-day basis that maybe don't fall underneath, you know, a squad every single day um, to, to, you know, have a good relationship with you, but at the same time, be motivated by something else other than your relationship to do well. 
I think, uh, especially in my fire session and like regimen, um, the big thing that I did um, was to have and to plan and hold like realistic and tough training sessions, whether that was PT once a week or, or you know, having um, when we had some like space in the calendar instead of like bull- like having a like fire is bullshit session where we just hung out for the day. You know, I, you know, got some land and we did some training and that was like tough and you know as tough and realistic as i can make it with having not you know having not having resources so i think it's like um the environment that you that you set like there i you know i would have time where after like after like mlet or after like a training session i would just sit there and just bullshit with the boys i buy pizza and for the boys and we just sit there and kind of bullshit for a little bit after like a tough training session but um you know i'm not saying that you can't be uh like spend time with your guys you you shouldn't be like you know in the iron or in the held in like that pedestal um in your office away from the guys but you know you have to you know balance like having um balance your relationship between like being a leader and then being a friend i guess yeah and i think it's way different too if we look at garrison relationship to deployment relationship because on a deployed relationship, I mean, that's your family for nine months. And you have to, you know, uphold some sort of a, a, a dynamic that, you know, you can apply both in a combat scenario and then training back on bath, calf, wherever you're at or whatever cop you're on versus in garrison. You know, they have their own family outside of the platoon. So it's what are you doing, uh, you know, on your P1, 2, 3 weeks um, that's going to get them to that deployed state where, you know, they're going to be ready to execute no matter what. Yeah, I think the big thing, and that's like a leader thing too, is that you have to, you know, hold yourself and your subordinates accountable. And, you know, at the end of the day, your goal isn't to be, you know, their best friend. Your goal is to be the best superior they can be. And that means providing tough, realistic training, holding them accountable for their actions, making sure that they're the best um, and best trained that they can be so that, you know, when the time counts, um, they're able to, you know, do their job when lives are on the line, when guys are, you know, in trouble, you know, you want your guys to be the most prepared that they can be because at the end of the day, like you're probably not, you might not be there when that time comes, but you at least can rest knowing that you have prepared yourself and your guys the best of your abilities for that, you know, future day. That's a hundred percent. And that's where we kind of bring it back to the JK Simmons character. When I first got to my platoon, I felt like I would raise my voice when I'd be mad about something like, and it it wouldn't just be like a day to day, like I'm going to raise my voice. If something got really fucked up, I was going to get mad and I yelled. And then the longer that I spent in like this platoon command time, the more I realized I could do the exact same thing by just keeping a more even temper. And if someone had messed up because I had consistently applied the, the same kind of, um, like counseling sessions with them that if, if I just went up and said like, Hey, you are really fucking this up. You are completely wrong in the way you're executing. This is not the standard, um, that's expected of you here. If you continue to, to do this, I assure you, you know, your times as squad leader will be drastically limited. Um, that had more of an effect than me yelling at them, you know, belittling them for not uh, accomplishing the task that they, you know, fully should have done. And then especially when I got to regiment, it was like a, I, I don't think I ever like truly got upset with any of my my squad leaders or my platoon sergeant or team leaders or rangers ever. If if we missed something, which was very rare, it was a, 
you know, a, a stern talking to, but it was also, a, uh, you know, looking back and reflecting, what did I not do to make sure that this was so secure that, you know, this, this squad leader forgot this? Was there something that I should have been doing to make sure? And so it was always looking back at myself and saying, what do I need to do next time to even if this mistake occurs again, I'm going to make sure that there's a system in place to, to prevent it. And so it, I feel compared to where I was day one as a platoon leader, as a second lieutenant to my last day as a platoon leader, as a captain, I was a completely different person and the way that I talked to individuals. And then when I went to Triple C and then eventually got to Fort Carson, I found myself like fighting the urge to go back to day one gold bar because I was so angered by just the the complete opposite world that that I had just left. Yeah, and I think uh, I would probably draw the same parallel with, with me um, and kind of like going from second lieutenant to captain, like FSO. I think going to med school and now coming back into the hospital, uh, you know, as not really like a senior, you know, person, but like, you know, as a doctor, um, I definitely find myself like no, like uh, having to control my, my emotions um, and not snapping at like the nurses or medics when things are fucked up or when things are like, super messed up because, you know, there's times when like, um, you know, I go check on a patient and there's like stuff like drastically wrong or incorrect where like patients don't have, aren't hooked up to IV fluids, aren't getting their antibiotics, aren't, you know, getting the proper care. And then, you know, when I ask, like I have, you know, I have to really control my emotions and make sure that I don't snap at the nurse or whomever is taking care of this patient because, um, most of the time it's not due to negligence or something, you know, you know, malignant. It's more so just like, Oh, like they didn't get a chance to do it because they were busy doing something else. But, um, that's one thing that I have, um, try to get better at is not make is to take, uh, and not snap and to control my emotions again. Um, cause I haven't had to really control them in a long time. <laughs> yeah. And examples of when I got mad, cause it literally was, it was really infrequent. Um, like one time on a squad live fire, uh, my squad who ended up having my best squad leader in it for my duration at hood was just executing it so slowly, like to the extent that I didn't know what could possibly be going wrong. Cause it was a really straightforward lane cause live fires are on, on a big open field. And so for the fact that they weren't getting up and moving across, you know, these different phase lines effectively and quickly enough, it was really frustrating to see like, you're not motivating the soldiers enough. And that, that angered me or another time, we're on a, on a mission in Afghanistan and all of a sudden I'm like looking around and I feel like I have deja vu. I'm in the same spot that I feel like I was in 30 minutes ago only to realize that we had done a complete circle around this one town in the middle of the night because I looked down and I saw the same checkpoint, this like weird candy cane pole in the middle of Maywan and realized that my squad leader's uh, uh, you know GPS device was broken and was really pissed off at I was not notified of that and then was embarrassed that I hadn't picked up on it until we got back to this checkpoint again mm-hmm. versus in regiment. Like the worst thing one of my squad leaders did was forget to charge a speaker for a call out and like how much of an impact that had on arguably what turned out to be one of the worst lanes that I ran um, as a PL there that, 
was just it, it we executed the lane it was not done in like say like a 45 minute standard it was done in like an hour and five minute standard but that 20 minute window made such a difference and was such an issue for you know like the bc walking my lane like that's the kind of small things in one organization uh compared to like you know in a conventional sense that would not have been a problem at all you would have just adapted it overcome but like whatever but there's just such higher expectations um when you're in soft versus uh you know, line units in the regular army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say like uh, the one thing you one statement you made about um, you being mad was also because you hadn't picked up on it before or soon exactly. until it happened. Yeah, I, I, I trusted this individual, and you should. You, it's not like you should never trust them. I always trust my squad leaders. After you know, you build up these relationships for months. I was upset that even if I had caught on to it earlier. I was more frustrated that I did not have systems in place where either other squad leaders were going to radio in and say, hey, you know, at this point, three, six, we're in the wrong spot. Or for me to go, we should have been seeing this geographic checkpoint. We're not here. Let me, you know, radio up to my first squad leader and figure out why. It wasn't until, you know, we got to this checkpoint again that I even started thinking of that. So I was also angry at myself for not setting conditions in my platoon where others felt confident to say something because it was wrong or that I was not on top of the mission. And so it was like, if this had been worst case scenario and we got into contact, would I have even relayed the correct coordinates for where we were? Would I have been prepared knowing that, you know, if we made contact near checkpoint two, what kind of terrain features were available for us to either take cover, return fire and maneuver? Like that's the kind of stuff you have to think about as a leader where, small errors can have huge drastic lifelong consequences and you just really have to be dialed in and not let yourself be lulled into complacency yeah i think that's a great point to make about being complacency and you know um trusting but also verifying exactly i find find the same you know the same concepts that applied you know back on the line i still take kind of into the hospital where like you know i trust nurses that they're doing their job but I also make sure I will, you know, not be lazy and assume that everything is going right or that assume that people are, you know, patients are doing well, but to go to the bedside and, and verify that, you know, things are supposed to be done correctly where, you know, the, the right fluids are hung, the right antibiotics, the right medications are given, that the nurses are doing their jobs and properly, you know, caring for the patients. And I think that's the same, you know, um, same idea that you have in the military or back on the line where, you know, you have to trust people are doing their jobs, but you also have to have the, um, the, uh, motivation and the drive to verify it because it, at the end of the day, that's a pain in the ass. Like you don't want to sit there and have to double check and triple check everything because you want to be able to, um, trust that people are doing the jobs. But at the same time though, you can't, you know, as a leader, you can't, you know, always, trust in somebody else and you have to have those redundant systems exactly. to make sure that things are getting done. And that's where like PCCs and PCIs are so crucial. And if you're in a regular army unit uh, in the infantry, you might not have the equipment that you would even consider necessary to go and check. You're going to have your machine guns, you're going to have your saws, and that might be it really for any kind of specialty equipment that your platoon carries. But as you go into maybe wheeled or mech formations, the weaponry changes, the specialty items you carry because of the equipment loadouts that you can have varies and changes significantly. And then 
you know, in the Rangers, your mission could change every single time. And and not only checking ropes, um, but you're checking all of maybe the gear of enablers that are going to be coming out on, on your operation. And so really creating a checklist for yourself will help. And I, I think a lot of what we've been talking about, too, goes back to that uh, leader development from a personal standard. And what you said, I think, really echoes in, in my head as the most important part of that is creating um, an image for yourself that others see as being not near, not perfect, but near perfect so that if you have to correct somebody like, you know, those who live in glass houses shouldn't be the one to first cat, you know, throw the first stone. You need to make sure your shit is squared away and and on point, because if you're about to go and tell one of your team leaders, squad leaders or just rangers or soldiers that they're jacked up, you can't be standing there with a magazine um, that, you know, is upside down in your weapon. I've seen that Uh, you can't be there saying something and your helmet's on backwards. You, you can't be there saying something and have just briefed a totally jacked up order because if that's platoon successful, it's because of your soldiers and rangers. If it's unsuccessful, that's 100% on you. Um, and so, you know, the buck stops with you. So that's why we talk about fitness. If you're not incredibly fit and you're supposed to motivate others to want to max out the new ACFT, like, that's going to be kind of awkward if you have soldiers and rangers that are physically much more dominant than you are. And then goes back to weapons qualification. Platoon leaders are, in my view, in general, infantry officers and, and infantry soldiers should be experts on, on the M4. And, you know, shooting anything less than a 39 should not be acceptable. Um, it's a standard in regiment. I think it should be the standard across the Army. It's small things like that. Um, communications, being on your radio, knowing how to operate the radio beyond just changing a channel, but being able to fill it and not just your embitter, but the ASIP and all the other stuff that you're going to be carrying. You know, there's like five pillars to just general leadership that you should be an expert on, not just being able to talk through it, but being able to execute it as well. And then that's where your subordinates will follow you to hell and back because they understand you're there to fight with them. You're going to protect them both at garrison and on deployment to make sure that they're set up for success. Um, and you know, you're putting in as much work as they are in understanding their roles so that when they're tasked to go do something, they know and have confidence that you've thought through everything that they're about to experience. Yeah. I'll say like, I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to be like the most physically dominant person in your platoon or your unit. Um, you don't that's a, you know, be the fastest or the strongest or the best. Be better to not be the worst. You know, you should definitely be at least above average um, and at least better than the the majority of your guys at whatever you're doing. Like you don't, you know, you're not like from like from a forest perspective, like I wasn't a JTAC. Like I didn't expect, I didn't, home, like, you know, I wasn't expected to be able to rattle off an online off the top of my head. But, you know, when it was my turn to, to, to do an online like i didn't sound like an idiot and i knew what i was doing you know same thing like on the yep. range like as an infantry pl like there's no and i don't you know know how many chance how many opportunities you you're going to be in the stack like clearing a room but um you should at least know and look like you know what you're doing uh when is training day um so that you your guys can see that hey like the pl is pretty confident he knows what he's doing um so we can actually trust in him and his abilities rather than you know do as I say, not as I do type of scenario. Exactly. And, and we're not, you know, like we said before, we're not going to talk through all the specifics of, 
of RASP too uh, when Bobby and I went through together, but we did have an exercise where we did some room clearing. And even just that experience and then getting the feedback from the NCOs that were running RASP 2, I, I left. If, I, if my experiences in regiment had just ended with that like one day period of going over room clearing and the drills that we had done, I would have been a much better soldier for it than had I you know never even served in the 75th. Um, so every single day you have to think that there's something that you should be doing and learning. If you're a platoon leader, and I was guilty of it when I got to the hood because I, I really didn't know any better. I thought, okay, there's some basics. I, I can shoot expert. I know the basics. Uh, I can rattle off a nine line. I'm really fit, and I can brief a really good order. I really wish I had spent more time in my arms room learning about not just knowing what the effective ranges were for weapon systems, but being able to put them all together, take them apart, um, the maintenance that goes into it, uh, learning more advanced uh, communications equipment that are, you know, commo techs had to constantly be up on top of. So if if something went down before we were getting ready to, you know, head out of Fab Pasab when we were deployed, I maybe could have troubleshooted it instead of waiting for, you know, our the E6 to come down from the company to tell us, oh, it's just this simple toggle that you should have switched. So I think in, I watched a documentary on Submariners and how even the, you know, the officers that are on these boats, there's this big like couple hundred list, couple hundred task list that they have to go through. Every single sailor on that boat has to go through it to just show general competency at every single level in every single compartment of that ship from the firing to fire safety to medical stuff. I feel like you should come up with that as a platoon leader in whatever organization you are and look at the weaknesses that you have and when you have free time, figure them out because at some point they're going to come into play, whether you're in command later or whether you're going to be OCing a lane and you need to tell somebody that you know that deficiency and that level item check that you had done as a PL would have made the difference in that situation. Um, and so just don't sit back and say, okay, I'm good at the four basics of an infantry PL life, but you know, your life as an infantry PL makes up such a small fraction if you do a 20 year career and all those other smaller things will put together and be a, a much more benefit when you are in a position, um, later in life. Yeah. I think it's a great, great point to make about, you know, not sitting back on your laurels when you have some free time, um, and like trying to fill the time with something that is going to be productive, and it might not be productive or beneficial for you for, you know, years to come until you don't realize that um, this was a skill that you picked up that was, you know, that you didn't think you needed to know, but then became useful in the future. You know, the classic, like uh, the classic saying, like putting your rucksack for later, like that's a, you know, that's totally applicable to everything that you do that, you know, the skills that you learn or that you pick up in your free time, um, which might not be applicable in the current moment. You never know in the future when that becomes super applicable or can actually make your life easier or make, you know, make you make make you successful in the future. Yeah. So it's like oh, yeah. uh thing that I like in the hospital, the things that I do is like, you know, I try to be um, independent in terms of if something is like I can at least do kind of the basic nur- nursing tasks, like hooking up fluids, like giving IV, like putting IVs in. Things that, like, if um, I don't have to ask a nurse to do, that I can kind of do it myself and then just tell the nurse I did something. Um, because, one, it makes their lives a little bit easier. And then, two, um, honestly, it, it, you know, makes things go smoother and just because things get done at a sooner time. Yeah, you talk about small stuff that, 
know, you guys do. I remember we were at uh, Bagram and like medical training. I, I feel like it's not it's not overly complex for you know that that first line care when you're on the battlefield. Everyone thinks, oh, I, I can put on a tourniquet. I'm you know done, good to go. But like, how many people have practiced putting in an IV? Have you practiced that? you know, uh, under some sort of strenuous condition in the dark, under nods, under red light, trying to find a wound. Um, you know, so at, at Bagram, we did this huge event where it's just like, you're just going to practice sticking people over and over again. And the, like the, the extra room that we had in the platoon bays was literally the floor was covered in blood. I mean, it, it looked like something out of blade. And I remember the BC walking it and he just did one of these, like, and just shut the door and back to like, what the hell did I just walk into? And then later that night, you know, we're in the bunkers, people are under, you know, red lamp and we've got, you know, our very experienced team leaders and squad leaders literally getting in people's ears. So they can't think just making like sounds like, eh. and this guy has to think going through the checklist for sweeping for the wound. And, you know, what is he going to address first with the airway? You know, where's the massive amount of blood coming from? And, you know, how are you going to stop that bleeding? What kind of, you know, uh, wrap or tourniquet are you, are you putting on and where? And I was like, I need to go through this too. Like, I feel like I can look at a patient and, and say, and say, and say all these things out loud in my head, like, this is what I would do. But until you actually get down and do it and you start fumbling and you realize maybe that your kid isn't set up in a way that is going to be successful in combat, you know, it's those small things that are like, all right, I need to put this pack on my right hip now because if I'm kneeling over a ranger or a soldier, that's where I'm going to be able to to get this piece of of equipment out to, to save this individual's life or, or to prevent, you know, further traumatic injury. So, Whatever training you're developing to, you need to be able to go through the ropes with and, and not just talk about. Hold on, bear back. I've got someone at the door real fast. Um, keep talking. Okay, cool. This will be Sean's hour. All right, guys. With Bobby gone, I want to go back to Wonder Woman 84. Uh, spoilers are going to follow. So we find that Diana Prince wishes that Chris Pine's character comes back to life. And he does, but he does so in the body of another person. Now, this doesn't make any sense because every other person on the planet who makes a wish through this wishing stone essentially has delivered their wish at the price of something, you know, to their detriment. Uh, For Diana, it was her powers as an Amazonian and as this goddess. And so that's why throughout the movie, she looks physically different, uh, less vibrant and less of the Gal Gadot that we've come to know and love. So what was really weird about this wish sequence was when she desires Chris Pine to return to her, instead of it being just like every other wish that's in the movie where it just pops into to existence, this was the only wish where it was like, oh, we're taking the life of somebody that was already around. Like whether or not he had a family, a backstory, um, it's completely overlooked. And so if she had just listed, I just want $10 million, that would have showed up in her living room. And instead... You know, uh, if we were consistent with our first wish, the $10 million should have like been turned into $10 million in cash from like her pet dog and her pet dog totally just ceased, uh, you know, existing. So that was a huge plot hole for me that I really disliked uh, about Wonder Woman 84 and Bobby's back. So, I'm hey, back. man, uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> Sorry, our neighbor was at the front door. Oh, uh, well, I was just talking about plot holes in Wonder Woman 84 and what kind of trash writing it was. Oh, the point that I was uh, getting where you were saying about, you know, you have to get and do the medical training. The point that I want to make is like, you know, you should be able to um, 
like i feel like leadership is like a one it's like a one-way street you know where you should be able to do everything that's you expect of the guys beneath like your subordinates you should be able to do what they can do but they can't do what you can do yeah and i think that's like the attitude um that any leader should have is that you know you should be able to you know if you're expecting someone you're like when you're supporting us to do something you should also be able to do the same thing and i think that's like a kind of the crux of being a leader is that you know you can't expect them to do your job but you sure as hell should be able to at least be able to do the majority of their job not probably not as well as them yeah but in order to you know be a good leader to fully understand like what their um job is and their duties you should be able to cover down and at least you know do yeah like if your job is cleaning weapons and putting them back together and doing like i don't know a functions test and you nd and shoot through your neighbor's wall like you know you should be able to go through and do that uh whoever you are gbs gbs not a good week not a Terrible. You know, regiments got history with robbing banks. Um, You know, they weren't caught at the bank. I don't remember. I don't think so. So, like, you know, a plus on the execution there. (laughs) Um, Except you did it in, I think, like military clothing. Um, But yeah, uh, SF this week between the the guy going and pulling a Walter Kocheck or Kocheck, whatever the guys from Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the the Green Beret. You know, reportedly with the ND. Um, yeah, yeah it's been a colonel, the one colonel. Oh, oh yeah. Then the, the, yeah, he was a former group commander too. Yeah. Um, with the, uh, standoff with the police for two hours. God, the reports from that were awful. Like he, he kicked his wife in the face multiple times. His kids were present. Yeah. And the like, kids were like begging him not to kill his, their mom or something. It was pretty terrible. That is awful. I, I, like, I think the shooting is awful and terrible, but something like, spousal abuse especially like that when you're a full-ass grown man 45 46 years old like taking out you know your whatever's going on uh, inside of your head physically on you know your significant other in front of your kids that is awful that's disgusting like it it blows me away that someone with that much experience would would resort to that um i have a question that might be a little um edgy but um you know how do you feel about um when these you know terrific terrific events happen and then you know kind of the the first reaction is to say like oh it's ptsd or it was like service related how do you feel about that as like a as a as like a reason or um you know it pisses me off um if anyone see pinky blinders um What's the guy's name? Danny Wisbang. You know, he, he's he got shell shock from World War One. He stabs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a family member of uh, the Italian mafia, and then he has to flee to London for the first series, um, you know, in the first few episodes. And, and like, that's, like, one of those, okay, he, ha- he legitimately has shell shock. Uh, it's really difficult for me to, to say people don't have PTSD. I've... I've got some combat experience, um, a lot more than some and a lot less than, you know, many more. Um, and I've never personally dealt with it. I, I've always looked at it like, I don't think for 99.9999% of those that have served their combat experiences come even remotely close to 
what the daily soldier experienced in Vietnam, experienced in Korea when entire battalions were lost or entire companies were wiped off, you know, the face of the earth on some desolate outpost or in World War II when, you know, people were storming beaches and just being laid waste by, you know, German guns or, you know, a Japanese sub sinks uh, the USS Indianapolis and 90% of the people there drown or are eaten by sharks. Like, so for me, for that reason, it really angers me because nobody was conscripted into this service. Everyone signed up knowing that at some point you might see something awful, um, whether it's from the enemy or, you know, seeing your fellow soldier ranger injured or killed. Um, but to not understand that and to to go forward and then use that as a as a reason for poor behavior is so unprofessional. And it's like it. I feel like it's just this huge sign of immaturity. Yeah, I don't think we're necessarily minimizing, you know, the effects of PTSD or seeing something terrible. Um, but yeah, I think I would definitely agree that um, a lot of times when people, you know, get in trouble for like whether it's, I don't know, um, like domestic violence or you know picking fights or getting into altercations, that they just claim that this was like PTSD related. Um, you know, I kind of, it gives me a little bit of pause and makes me kind of wonder because, you know, I think there are, you know, legitimate people who are people who are legitimately, um, you know, in bad places mentally from, you know, war, like combat or what have you. But then when you have people that, um, you know, do terrible things and then blame it on some PTS or PTSD, like that they freak out and like shoot up a bowling alley, um, and try and claim that they were, you know, some that they were triggered and they that caused them to shoot a bowling alley. I don't know. You know, if I, it causes me like it kind of cheapens the whole like, um, you know, the whole PTSD. Um, oh no! Like it, I completely agree because it's you only see people use the PTSD card when they have when they're in the wrong. Um, you know, it's never someone before an event happens like, hey, I'm. I'm suffering from PTSD for, you know, X, Y, Z reasons uh, and, you know, taking care of those, those issues going forward. It's, you know, I, I ran a stoplight. I got PTSD. Oh, my fireworks went off. So I kicked my dog because it reminded me of, you know, a rocket attack that, you know, hit my base and landed six miles away from where I was, you know, sleeping. Like it's stuff like that that really angers me. And then the other thing with PTSD, and again, it's such a, like a, it's one of the subjects I don't think you can really touch because mm-hmm. you can't ever pinpoint anyone's specific experience and say you don't have PTSD because you look like an absolute animal and, and like you have zero empathy. But I scored very low on my empathy test when I was at RASP too. So, I, you know, I, it is what it is. But for a lot of these people that you hear that they have PTSD, you, you legitimately ask the question, what did you even see when you were deployed? You know, and we, we've got people here in the United States that are civilians that claim they have PTSD from like literally anything. And you can you can claim you have PTSD and get like a service dog. Like it just I think it's the PTSD aperture is so wide now. And we're not asking, does this person really have PTSD or is this just some made up crutch that they're trying to, you know, get something else from society? Like, I feel like you should have a standard to say, hey, no, Sergeant, uh, you were a mechanic at CAF. You didn't get a combat badge. You don't have PTSD. You signed up for this army. You deployed. You weren't in a combat arms branch. Again, you didn't see combat. And for nine months, 
you ate too much food on at the defect and then got back and got out of the army after three and a half, four years. Like those are the types of hard questions and you know, the, the, the very narrow analysis of what I think like PTSD should be limited to like really extreme cases instead of allowing everyone to get away with it, almost like a get out of jail free card. Oh no, it was just PTSD. Like that's just bullshit. It's lazy psychologists, psychiatrists, whoever you are, you're not doing your job. And it's to the detriment, I think of the country because it just creates like this soft, mentally soft, feeble country where people can't deal with their emotions in an effective way. They put a label on it. And then that prevents them from moving forward because, oh, no, I've just got this. I don't have to work on it because society acknowledges it and I'm giving like a, a I get a free pass at some point in the future when I misbehave. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like on the one in spectrum, on the one in the spectrum, like, you know, um, I do think that there is definitely, you know, plays for PTSD. But at the same time, though, I do think that um, it's gotten to the point where it's like, like you said, it's like an untouchable subject where people are scared to touch this 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 issue because um, for fear of sounding like anti-veteran or fear of sounding like like not sensitive to other people's thoughts and emotions. But it's like, I, like where do you draw the line? And um, like where do you draw? You know, where where do you tell someone like, hey, like yeah, like you probably it wasn't that bad, but you just kind of need to deal with it and move on. Versus like you actually need, you know, I don't know. Like, so I, I think it, you could clean this up real quickly in the military. One, did you deploy to a combat zone? Okay, that's like a, a pretty low threshold of entry. Two, did you see combat? Uh, and then th- that's where you look at like the, the CIB and the CAB now because those awards have been drastically watered down. Uh, you know, there are times where if, if a rocket attack happens at Bagram, I think like a brigade commander tried to give the entire brigade that was at Bagram uh, a combat award, even though it, it landed and didn't impact or injure a single person. Or like I, there was a something I think in 2013 or 14 when I was deployed, there was like a pop shot over some random fob, maybe Terranco or something, and somebody put in the unit for uh, a CAB because, you know, they were directly fired upon on the enemy. It's like, okay, well, like that goes back to should combat uh, badges be awarded only if you return fire, only if you maneuver, or if you just stood there and you some some round landed closely to you. And that's the, and we bring up, this is why you can't talk about it, because individuals have been killed by random shots that got over a wire. Individuals have been killed by the, the missile or the mortar round that hits Bagram or Calf. But the, those make up, like, I would wager 0.001% of all combat fatalities. And so just because it happened in one instance for, like, in a, some statistical anomaly, essentially, given how large the bases are and just the randomness of some of these rockets and mortar attacks, maybe say, okay, if, if you got indirect fire and you weren't injured, nobody was injured, you weren't close to being injured, like, that shouldn't suffice to to warrant a PTSD claim either because it was so infrequent for you that you couldn't really think that it was going to happen day in day out like some shell-shocked veteran from World War II battle you know of the bulge like so I think people need to sit back and say okay it might have sucked for me in this one instance but I look at Dick Winters did did I even come close to what he went through and should I be suffering from the same emotional or mental ailment that he clearly probably suffered from, but he compartmentalized it and clearly didn't go shooting up a bowling alley in the middle of, you know, Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, I mean, like, um, if I remember from, like, med school and, like, learning about PTSD, it's, like, uh, I believe it has more something to do with, like, the, um, it's, like, how much anxiety that you feel and then you link that anxiety or fear with, like, everyday emotions or something like that. Um, So, you know, theoretically, you could claim that you have, like, PTSD from being mortared because, you know, that was a very high anxiety or fear-provoking event that can that becomes linked with, like, normal day events, you know? Um, but I don't know. It's, like, I think that, you know, we perhaps are a little too cavalier in issuing out these, you know, diagnoses. And maybe veterans are also a little bit to blame with seeking out these diagnoses for, you know, getting that um, that disability per check, you know? Oh yeah, 100%. and I think and I think yeah. that you know while a lot of people probably do suffer from PTSD from being in the military, may or may not be combat related because I for sure probably have a little bit of PTS from like almost dying on like a on like a you know train jump and MLAT, um like but it doesn't you know necessarily affect my day to day life. It only affects me like if I smell like uh, if I go on like a tarmac and smell like the jet fuel. I get oh, like yeah. real anxiety, like real anxious and my heart starts racing. So things like that, are, like I, I can buy, like you don't necessarily need to go into combat, but um, you know, with any anxiety, it's really anxiety producing or fear producing event. It can definitely be, you know, cause some PTS. Um, but at the same time though, like I think we definitely as a whole between like the country and as veterans kind of cheapen the diagnosis of PTSD when, you know, veterans or people trying to get out of the military try to claim PTSD as a easy handout for the government and then, you know, going on and use that as an excuse for, yeah. Isn't it like 10, it's like 10 or 30%. Like it's something, it's not insignificant and it's, you know, for, for everyone that's ETS, when you go through the, the checklist, like they ask for PTSD multiple times and I never put down that I had PTSD because I I don't. Um, but it was one of those things that they can't really check. It's like, Oh, I've got pain in my lower back. There was literally no test for that to get like an automatic 10% for an individual. Mm -hmm. Can you touch your toes? Yeah. Does it cause you some pain? A little. Is that a flexibility issue? Oh, no. It must be from wearing kit for for years on end. Um, Oh, but you are on staff. You never put your plate care on. doesn't matter. Like here's your 10%. And so now you're like a, you know, oh, one more event and now you're a disabled veteran at 20%. So I think I feel like a lot of things in the Army have been – really watered down and when individuals do real gallant acts that cause a, an emotional response in the future it it cheapens their experiences because individuals are weary to trust whether or not this person really has PTSD or they're like you know that 28 year old major who's on their first deployment who heard about a mortar attack and then goes back and beats the shit out of his wife and claims oh no it was PTSD because a uh, fob got mortared and we were in, I was in Afghanistan. It's a war zone. And you're like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I think the point that, um, you know, we're not trying to diminish, I think like PTSD or people that are, you know, have mental or emotional issues suffering from, you know, like traumatic events. But um, I think as a whole with the military and how kind of things have been treated, I think that veterans, you know, kind of um, the whole concept of having PTSD becomes watered down and it just becomes like a blanket, um, you know, get out of jail free card that veterans try to pull, you know, just if you have any military service, it's like you're, you know, almost, uh, um, 
you know, qualified to pull the PTSD card because you have military service. Yeah, and, and because less and less of America has served, you know, compared to our past and the connections that we have as American citizens um, to individuals that have served has lessened from Vietnam onward. It's gotten to the point where everyone gets thanked for their service and now everyone assumes that if you claim something um, from your service, whether you just went to Afghanistan or Iraq, everyone automatically thinks that A, you were at like Tora Bora, um, B, you killed bin Laden, uh, and C, you had to have been IED and rocketed every damn day of your deployment, which is could not be further from the case for 99.9% of all deployed personnel. And, like, and, I, and I say that with utter confidence, having deployed multiple times and seeing you know, oh, we talk about like fraud, waste, and abuse. Like this is everyone wants that two thousand dollar stimulus check or that six hundred dollar stimulus check, and people are like, oh my god, that's so much money. Whether you're on a Republican or a Democrat, like why are we just handing out free money? It's like we should be looking at the military and saying the same damn thing. Like how many people have we sent to CAF that never leave CAF that really don't have a function except their unit went to Afghanistan and they got nine months of tax free payment plus hazard duty pay, like the billions and trillions of dollars we've wasted on contractors to go do jobs that military individuals should be performing in Afghanistan. That recent article that came out that said like we're spending like a billion dollars a year on obesity in the military because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and space guardians are too fat. Like that's the kind of stuff where even now you look back at the PTSD thing we just talked about, Evan, how many payments are going out from the VA for this kind of stuff. It's just like, it's awful. Like we, we waste so much money as a military force. And it, like, I feel like everything is interconnected when you drop standards in some areas. And then we can bring this back to the discipline discussion we had as a leader. Like if, if you're not performing at a high level, you know, that's going to have reverberating consequences in some other line, in some other relationship. Like, you know, everything can be connected here. This is true. I think, you know, the bottom line is you need to be the best version of yourself possible. And yeah. you, should, you should hold yourself to that standard. And, you know, when you aren't holding yourself to a high standard, you just cheapen um, the experience for everybody around you and ultimately let down those around you. Yeah. And, and the, the last word I, I guess we can probably say on the, the PTSD thing, if you are really struggling with PTSD, like, Please do not take the conversation that we've just had as you know an affront to, to your experiences. Um, we're bringing this up because I think it's a worthwhile conversation. If you have PTSD, you know individuals that probably claim to have PTSD that have not been through you know uh, a percentage of your experience um, and are probably you know getting the benefit of something that you know you truly suffer from. Uh, if you need help or need to seek out help, Operation RSF. Uh, is a great resource. Uh, they're bringing the community together. Um, a couple guys from group founded it. Um, reach out to them uh, if if you want to talk. Uh, there's a ton of hotlines. I guess we can probably throw one in the podcast uh, link below. But you know there is you know a resource for you out there. But you know if if you're out there and you're considering whether or not your experiences uh, were validated uh, through your service, and this is just like another way that you can you know get something from Uncle Sam. Um, you know, you really need to reevaluate and see what that does to cheapen um, the the pain that others are experiencing. Yeah, I know we've talked about this before in the past, but like one of my biggest pet peeves is, is when guys when they get <clears throat> when they get out of the military, they try to when they go for that um, that separation, like physical, 
where they try and pull as many, you know, as many things or as many, you know, service related injuries as possible to try and max out that disability check. But, you know, it was never, you know, like, do you really think that you deserve a hundred percent disability because, you know, you hurt you like you're just fat and you have back problems. Whereas you have guys that like, uh, you know, get blown up in, in Afghanistan, Iraq guys are missing arms and legs. They don't even qualify for a hundred percent disability. I think they still go back out and and go on the next mission too. Like they're not done. They they've volunteered to go back as amputees. And it's just like, it, it, that's what drives me like insane and kind of nuts that people that one have like never deployed, but then, you know, try and claim like all these service related injuries. Um, and they compare and contrast that with guys and gals who have gone overseas that haven't blown up, that haven't shot, that don't even qualify for, you know, 20% disability, even though they're, you know, have purple hearts. Yet, you know, we're, we're in, as a system systematically like allowing these subpar, like shitty soldiers to get away with claiming, you know, 100% disability on, on, you know, on just being, you know, just fat and out of shape. And that just yeah. drives me or nuts. Erectile dysfunction. Like that for men out there, that's like the easiest thing that you can claim when you're ETSing for, I think, what is it? I think it's 30% maybe. I'd have to look it up, but I remember hearing soldiers talking about gaming the system, sleep apnea. Um, there's a captain that got out at Fort Carson. I'm not going to name him. There's very few people that probably listen that, that know who I'm talking about. This dude got fat, like never deployed, um, was like Space Force or something, I think I remember, uh, got, but got fat and got fatter when he was getting out in order to make his claim more viable that he had sleep apnea. I don't think he ever uses a sleep apnea machine. He just got fat eating McDonald's every day. Yet the army's paying him like a 50 at a 50% disability rating, uh, because uh, of his poor performance and poor standards, uh, you know, for himself when he was in. So that goes back to like, where was his leader? Where's that major that was in charge of him or that Lieutenant Colonel saying, Hey dude, you're getting fat. Like, it's embarrassing. Like, you're getting out. I haven't seen you in six months. You know, he gamed the system at his unit so where he wasn't showing up because neither one of his bosses knew who he was supposed to report to. And so for the six months leading up to it, he just didn't go to work. You know, so like, that's the kind of stuff that drives me up the wall because you see the long wait times that we've had in the VA for people to try to get in and actually get seen. Those individuals that probably are suffering from PTSD or have some actual physical physical ailment from being shot, blown up, and they can't because the VA is constantly dealing with paperwork from assholes that don't take care of themselves and have the individual discipline while they're in the military and then make claims for their own personal failures and make it the responsibility of the taxpayer to pay them for the rest of their life because of their laziness. Like, it, it's probably the most frustrating thing I've ever seen beyond just like soldiers signing up thinking that Uncle Sam owes them anything. It's like a privilege to serve. You aren't owed anything except in like, I think, really explicit, very narrow circumstances. What Bobby and I have kind of droned on about here, like blown up, shot, going through something serious. If if I busted my knee on a jump, that sucks. I volunteered for that. Like I was not forced to jump out of the fucking plane. You volunteered if you were running as a civilian and you were working at like a law firm here, the law firm is not going to pay you for the rest of your life because you decided to stay fit. Like that's just life. So the army is very forgiving when it comes to stupidity that individuals, you know, uh, execute on their own individual basis. But it, it's just awful that the taxpayer is now responsible for it going forward. Exactly. Um, I don't know if I'm going to keep beating that dead horse, but at the end of the day, you know, 
Because that dead horse probably has 70% disability. Yeah. But it's like, you know, if you... I'm all for guys getting, you know, compensated for, you know, things that are legitimate. But it's just, you know, when you have the guys who have literally done nothing and haven't earned anything and feel like they are owed by the government, they're owed taxpayer dollars because they signed up and volunteered for service. It's just like, um, I think, you know, maybe that's just a product of today's society and culture where... Um, we just expect, or people just expect to to be given things and expect to not have to work hard for anything. We just expect to be taken care of for, you know, for doing something. Um, you know who I blame this on, Bobby? What's that? I, I blame this on Outback Steakhouse, TGIF, uh, is McDonald's. Panera, is Panera, whoever gives the most discounts on Veterans Day, they started all this. They started this 20 years ago. When you went and got a free meal, and then all of a sudden that just started seeping into everywhere else in the military. So now everyone understands that beyond just Veterans Day, I should be getting these same great discounts from everyone as a veteran. Like, thank me for my service on a on a day basis. And not only do I need to be thanked by civilians, I need to be thanked by the Army. The Army owes me for having volunteered. Yeah, I think just the pendulum has just swung so far back in the opposite direction that it's kind of um, almost sickening, especially... You know, we talk about when I see like, you know, NFL football games and you see like the random service member that's honored on TV and it's just like, um, you know, I think it's a good thing that we do that. But like, it's kind of, you know, it's almost kind of, you know, we're paying for it. Yeah, we pay for those fucking flyovers. Healthy. Like, yeah. that's stupid. Like, hey, Jerry Jones, you should be coughing up money to have individuals from Fort Bliss or Fort Hood come down to do whatever part of the anthem you want to claim with that Brett Favre hand over your heart, not taking your baseball cap off, you asshole. Like, the military shouldn't be paying 2 to $3 million to have that experience. And I'm an Eagles fan, so again, if there's something I hate more than the Cowboys, I need to figure it out. But the Cowboys are at the top of the list, and so is Jerry Jones. Worst GM, I think, in football in the last 25 years, if I'm also correct. I think he has the worst record of any team, and I'm pretty sure they are. Is, are the Cowboys losing right now? I don't I haven't checked yet. Yeah. Okay, so Lululemon's on the shit list because 10,000 is so much better. Uh, but Dallas Cowboys are always on the shit list. I know we have some Cowboy fans out there. Um, so you can go ahead and unfollow us because I hate the Cowboys so much. Like, you are not going to be missed. Like, you and that awful team. The only thing that's come out of Dallas that's been good is Tony Romo as a broadcaster after <laughs> he was a subpar quarterback who can't hold a fucking field goal kick. Like, enjoy the postseason. Guess who's won the Super Bowl in the last 20 years? E-A-G-L-E-S. Eagles. That's who, baby. Fuck you, Dallas. I think we'll probably you want to wrap it at that. I don't know how much more. We oh yeah, Giants going. won. So Cowboys, congratulations! You're not making the postseason again. All you had to do was win this game, and you didn't. You could not beat the Giants. Eagles <sighs> couldn't either, though. At the same time, Wait, who, who cares? We knew the Eagles sucked this year. I mean, that's, <laughs> we got a Super Bowl, man. I don't care if they suck for another twenty years. Like we got one. Like congratulations, just because. Oh, yeah, I said you know another reason why I hate the Cowboys. Troy Aikman and Joe Buck are by far some of the worst commentators that oh, are out man. there. Troy Aikman just like sits up there, and Joe Buck is just like, if Troy Aikman was a cow, Joe Buck would get so much milk out of him from just. Oh my God, remember that Troy? Let me show you a previous game clip of you and Emmett Smith being good back in 1925 when football was still up and coming. Like Joe Buck, thank you 
for adding zero value to this conversation because you've never played sports. Uh, you hate Philadelphia. I, that's completely apparent. I remember so many games where you just like wrote off Jonathan McNabb when the Eagles were making the NFC Championship game every single year. Whenever the Phillies are playing, oh yeah, they won a World Series. Like, fuck you, Dallas. I, I think we should end on that. <laughs> Yeah, so like a um, kind of a little bit negative podcast at some points. We kind of you know maybe Wonder Woman started it. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe a little little harsh on some things, but at the end of the day, you know, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that you know we um, hold ourselves to such a high standard, and we kind of expect um, and would hope that um, people would hold themselves to such a high standard, but. I think you and I both understand and we all understand that in today's age, in today's society, in today's America, um, that's few and far between of the people that are, um, one, uh, disciplined enough to hold themselves to a high standard and two, uh, motivated and, you know, willing to, to hold themselves to such a high standard and hold others around them to such a high standard. Um, so while we, you know, might be a little harsh and a little bit, um, uh, maybe a little, um, um, uh, riding, you know, riding on certain aspects of a lot of things in life and society. You know, I think at the end of the day, we just want to see uh, this country and its military do better and be better. Yeah, and it, like Bobby said, it, it, we we complained in this podcast for sure, but like I hope that we've established enough of a rapport so that individuals know that like we saw a problem with fitness in the army. We started Cronus Fit to address that issue. Like don't just be an individual that spots a problem and does nothing about it. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and again, you find that we are completely off basis, unless you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, I don't care. Um, like hit us up. I mean, we, we had a question and answer thing yesterday or two days ago about civil affairs, like voice my opinion on what civil affairs and infantry branch don't have in common. Um, but yet we like I still acknowledge that there is a role for civil affairs in the military and we still let individuals, you know, voice those opinions and share those opinions because if someone wants to serve in the capacity that they can to the best of their ability and like go and join that branch, although I would not, like I'm not going to shit on someone's dreams or someone's motivation and drive. So if you see a problem, do something to address it, but just don't be a person that rambles on about being angry about something and then that's where it stops. Like be the change you want to see, be somebody, go out and, and, and make the world in the image that you think uh, is best. And just don't sit in your basement on Reddit. Like that's the worst. All right. Um, I think we'll, we'll wrap it at that. Um, any other last closing comments, Sean? Uh, Cronus fit 15 on, on 10,000. If you want some, some awesome swag, absolutely love their stuff. And uh, I guess we'll end with that. Um, we'll catch you guys next time. Peace. Later. <laughs>